You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington, DC, and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for, for joining us this morning as it looks like we are really, really out of seats uh, this morning. So thank you guys for, for packing in here this morning. Now, um, in life, there are times when perhaps it could be a little bit more difficult or easy to tell what is real from fake. Um, now, there's two occurrences this week uh, that happened in New York City that I want to give you two examples. Um, one is not going to be on the screen. The first one's not going to be on the screen, but it's just something that happened this week that on the streets of New York, there was one of the largest police raids of illegal merchandise. Over $35 million worth of fake products were confiscated. Now, I think we're doing our capital campaign wrong, apparently, uh, if you can can sell knockoffs uh, and have that much uh, to sell. Now, what's interesting about this is when they, when they discovered the, these products, the, the, the street vendors who were selling these were not trying to act like these were the real thing. Like, they were very blatantly telling people these were knockoffs and fakes. Like it, like, it wasn't a hard thing to understand that this is not the real deal. This merchandise was fake. The bags were fake. The sunglasses were fake. The watches were fake. And it, and it, was, it was just easy to tell. But there was another instance that happened this week in New York that was not so obvious. This is kind of funny. It happened at a New York fashion show uh, where someone pulled a prank. And I want to show you the picture here. <laughs> so this guy wore a trash bag and a shower cap to a New York fashion show, and no one noticed. <laughs> He's not supposed to be in the fashion show. He literally just walked down as a prank, the catwalk, and people thought it was real. Until the very end, where the security guard finally realized and came and tackled him. Now, now I share this example because one of the commentators is hilarious. One of the commentators is like, well, fashion's been getting trashier by the moment anyways, uh, which I thought was really, really punny and good. Uh, but the fact that this guy was able to walk into a New York fashion show, one of the, one of the best fashion shows, and, and pull this off is amazing. It shows you just how hard it is sometimes for us, if we're not careful, to be able to determine what is real versus what is fake. In other words, what is genuine by versus what is hypocritical. And what we need to have today is, is kind of a, a, what my, my kids would call family meeting. When you come together today, and we as a family need to make sure we are all on the same page in what should be real versus what should be fake. What should be genuine versus what is hypocritical. And what this text is going to show us is that one of the genuine marks of a community of faith is that of real love. Of a genuine love. Not a fake love, not a hypocritical love, not a love that tries to put one thing out on our, on our face, but then behind the scenes we're some more different. We're not trying to hide it. We're not trying to be someone we're not. We're supposed to have a genuine love for one another. Not fake, but real. Jesus says it this way in John 13. He tells his disciples, he says, look, uh, the world will know, the people will know that you're my disciples by the way in which you love one another. Oftentimes, I think it, subconsciously, we want to finish that statement differently. We want to say, well, people will know that we're his disciples be- because of how successful we are or for how big our churches get. Or, or people will know that we're his disciples because we have our lives together. B- because look at what we're accomplishing. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love. The world will know that heaven has genuinely touched this community by our love. Not just D.C., but, but beyond the, the, the borders of D.C., people will begin to see that God is real by the way in which the community of faith loves one another. And that is our theme this morning. 
that our main idea is going to come from this text, but it's also going to be a reference back to, to John 13, that we should love one another as Jesus loves you. That a genuine love comes from Jesus. And what Paul's going to show us is, is some characteristics of a genuine love and how the world is going to know that we are his disciples, how the world is going to know that Jesus is real is by how we apply this love in the community and in those outside the community. And so Paul's going to unpack what this love looks like, this genuine love looks like. It's almost as if like when you read this, Paul's like on Twitter or he's on, on X, whatever you want to call it these days, right? And he's just saying like these little punchy lines back to back to back to back to back to what, what uh, love is. And we're not going to sit there and take every line by line here because there's over 22 uh, ex- exhortations to the church here. So we'd be here for a really long time if we tried to go line by line with those. What we're going to do is we're going to group them and we're going to follow the outline and see three things that I think this passage teaches us. It shows us what real love looks like in the community, meaning the community of faith, the church. It's going to show us what real love looks like to our enemies. And then it's going to show us the real power to love. How do we have this real, authentic, genuine love? Now, I think what helps us immensely when we come to a passage like this that has so many exhortations uh, is to see that what Paul's not doing, he's not giving us a to-do list. He's not telling us, hey, this is what you need to do. Do this, 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 this. What he's actually doing is he's painting a portrait for us. And this is a portrait of Jesus. Everything we see today is painting a portrait of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And when we understand that, then it's going to be easy for us to see how this now applies to our lives. It's how the, the, the book of Romans has, has kind of been written for us. As, as we've alluded to, we started in Romans 12 with this, this therefore, which was a transition in the book. And when he says therefore, he, he's referencing back to everything that we've learned so far, the gospel message, what Christ has done for us, how he has loved us. And he says, in view of the mercies of God, in view of what we know we've experienced through the gospel, Paul's saying, this is now how we live in it. This is how we experience community in it. And so we're going to look at what real love looks like in the community. We'll look at three uh, distinctive views of this. Number one, uh, we see that real love in the community is a discerning love. Let's pick up in verse 9. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Now again, this word genuine here that we're referencing here is kind of, this is the statement. Let love be genuine is, is what Paul's describing. Everything from the statement is what he's describing, what genuine love looks like. And that word genuine, again, means real, authentic. It's not hypocritical. It's not fake. It's not wearing a mask and putting a mask on and being someone different. It's a genuine, sincere, authentic love. And he says the first thing that defines that love is that it's a discerning love. It knows what is good from what is evil. Now, you might say, this sounds kind of weird, that he would immediately start talking about, let's have genuine love, and then, and then he says, hate or abhor what is evil. Like, how can love and hate coexist? That, that doesn't seem to flow well with our society. And in fact, oftentimes when we talk about living in a tolerant society, it, it seems like this doesn't jive well. How can we say we, we have genuine love, but there's actually hate for something in the community as well? And there's a principle that uh, we kind of live by in life, which is simply this. Do whatever you like. You do what you want. You live how you want. I live how I want. All we need is love. And that'll be enough, right? And that really comes from a principle that dates back to the late 1800s called the harm principle. And, and on face value, it sounds pretty good, actually. Essentially, what the harm principle is, is, is this. You live your life how you want to live your life. I live my life how I want to live my life as, as, as long as we don't harm each other. You go about living your life how you please to live your life, and I should live my life how I please to live my life. Let's just stay out of each other's way, as long as we don't harm each other. Now, now that sounds really good on face value, but what's the issue there? Well, the issue is how do we define what's harm? 
The issue is what happens when we have different views of what is right or wrong? The difference is what, what if we have different views of what actually constitutes harm versus uh, what constitutes that is good? And you can see thousands of examples. I don't have to give these to you. You can see thousands of examples where there could be a contradiction to what actually is harmful to someone, what is evil and what is right. And what Paul's saying here is that we can't actually love someone unless we deal with this first. If we don't know what is right from wrong, if we don't know what's actually harmful to our neighbor or what is good for our neighbor, then, then we can't actually love them. And so what is Paul doing here? Well, he's showing us that there's a standard. There's a straight line of the universe. That there is a, a moral, transcendent order. And he's telling the church, he says, it doesn't matter if you grew up Jew, it doesn't matter if you grew up Greek. He would look at D.C. today, and it doesn't matter if you uh, support the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It doesn't matter it, whatever you, if you believe in God or if you don't believe in God. It doesn't matter. God is the one who defines what is right and what is wrong. That's what Paul's saying. God is the one who has set in motion what is good and just and beautiful, and he is also the one who defines for us and decides what is evil, wrong, and immoral. Which is why to have a, a genuine love is to have a discerning love. It is to say we, we can hate what God hates, and we can cling to that whole fast there, cling to glue ourselves to what God calls good. Now, this is not easy. It, it, it's not easy because the question becomes, well, well how do we love and, and, and have this hate at the same time? It doesn't seem like it works. Well, it does work, actually. And it's actually one of the strongest forms of love in life. Let me give you an example. If you love someone, if you deeply love them, then at the same time, you're going to be ferociously angry at the sin in them. You're going to be ferociously angry at anything that would inflict harm or evil to them, Right? A, a love for someone actually wells up within us a righteous anger towards that which is evil. So if someone is doing something that's self-inflicting to them, that's harming them, the most loving thing you can do is to look at them and hate that which is causing harm to them. And it's how we understand justice in this world at the same time. If, if a loved one is harmed, what do we say? We want justice, right? It comes from a place of saying we don't want to just sit around and allow someone to be destroyed. That is a discerning love. It's a love that says we can't sit on the sidelines with our brothers and sisters. It's a love that says we have to look at what God says, and if God is love, and if he is good, and if he is true, then what he says is wrong is wrong. And if what he says is right is right. It doesn't matter how we feel about it in the moment. And when we understand this, then we can actually move into each other's lives, and, and we can actually lovingly, with a discerning love, confront that which is wrong within us. And we can also be open to be confronted by one another in the community no matter how we're feeling in the moment. And look, this is really hard, okay? It's really hard because people don't like to hear things that they don't want to hear. <laughs> and it's hard to deliver truth that people don't want to hear in the moment. But Paul says that is actually what defines a genuine love here. Because it is more loving to share truth than to let and tolerate someone's sin. So actually the most unloving thing to do is to live with tolerance without truth. Because we, when we live in a world where there's tolerance without discernment or truth, it causes indifference. And what happens when we're indifferent in the community of faith? It means that we, we don't really care enough to say something. It means we look to our brother and our sister to the left and the right of us and we say, I, I don't take you seriously enough to get involved. I, I'm not going to speak into your life. 
Because deep down, I don't take you seriously enough. I, I, I don't want to spend the time to get to know your story and to enter into your pain and to understand where you're coming from. So Paul starts here and he says, look, a, de- a love that defines the church community is discerning love. It's a love that says we hold fast to what is good and, and we, we know it's evil and we hate it and we don't want it in the community. And it allows us to actually lovingly move into people's lives and speak hard truth even when it's hard to say it. But notice what he says right after this. It's a discerning love, but it's also an affectionate love. So it's not just what we say in truth. It's, it's also how we feel. Look at verse 10. He says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, a genuine love is not just one that can discern right from wrong and speak truth into each other's lives. A genuine love is also one that is heartfelt. It's not aloof. It's not dispassionate. It involves affection. It isn't just merely what we say. And look, you've experienced this before. Maybe around holiday season, you go to your family's holiday gathering, or maybe you've gone to another family's holiday gathering. You've experienced this, so you don't throw your own own family under the bus here. Uh, And you show up for Thanksgiving dinner, and everybody's smiling, and everybody's saying, I love you, but you can feel the tension, right? You can cut it with a knife. People are saying one thing, but in their hearts, they're not feeling it. And sometimes we can approach the church the same way. We can believe as long as we're using the language of love, then that means it's the presence of real love. Or we can even say that, that because of our actions that we are actually, we're actually love our neighbor. We say, oh, look, look at all the ways that we serve the church. Look at all the ways we're serving one another. But Paul says, no, no, no. For love to be genuine, it's got to be heartfelt. It's got to have an effect on us. If God is your father through the finished work of Christ, then that means when we look around to our brothers and sisters in this room, we recognize that we are now spiritually family. We are related to one another. It doesn't matter if if perhaps the person to your left or your right would not be the person you would normally choose for your friend. Because you're spiritually related now. We're bound together now. That means our interactions with each other aren't calculated anymore. Uh, We don't look at each other and say, do a cost-benefit analysis, well, what could this friend do for me? And we look at each other and we say, no, we we have affection for each other because whether that's my my type of person or not, they're in my family now. And if you want to know if you have heartfelt affection for, for one another, let's just look at the next uh, exhortation. Outdo one another in showing honor. If you want to know if you have affection for one another, practice this. What does he mean when he says outdo one another uh, the, then, uh, in showing honor? Well, he's going back to what he said last week as Ben was teaching, which, which Paul commands us, he, he reminds us, to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. To think of ourselves with sober judgment. Why? Because the default setting of our hearts is to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Uh, The default setting that we have is to to be concerned with, am I getting enough credit? Am I being recognized enough? Am I being made enough of? And Paul says, you want to learn how to have an affectionate heart towards your brother and sister in Christ? Flip that on its head. Because genuine love means that, no, I'm not concerned necessarily if I get the credit. I'm concerned with giving other people credit. I'm concerned with showing them honor. Now, honor is not flattery, okay? Uh, showing honor is not flattery. We live in D.C., and look, flattery reigns here in a lot of ways. It's a political town, right? We smile, we hold the babies, we kiss the babies. No, Henry, we, we did that. That was genuine. Um, <laughs> just realized the imagery I just pointed there, like, this is a baby. Uh, no, we love Henry. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 the kissing the babies, saying the right things, telling people that they're awesome. What, what does flattery do? Well, flattery is not showing honor. Because what flattery is doing is, I'm, I'm saying this so that you'll like me. It's inherently selfish. 
It's not actually thinking about the other person. It's just saying, I'm going to say nice things. I'm going to do nice things to this person so that I can receive something in return. But what Paul is saying here is that when we honor someone, what we're, what we're actually doing is we're celebrating the ways in which Jesus is using them. We're celebrating the ways in which we see Jesus in them. And I actually believe he, he wants us to do this publicly with one another. Honoring each other and outdoing each other in honor is, is making sure that we're able to look to our brothers and sisters and we're actually able to see the evidence of Jesus in them and celebrate that. But notice what he says. He doesn't just say show honor. He says outdo one another in showing honor. It's a healthy competitiveness to this, right? If I don't live by this principle, you know what's going to be true of my heart? I'm going to be more concerned about receiving honor than giving it. And it's a zero-sum game then. Because if I become more concerned about how I'm receiving honor from others than giving it, then I'm going to inherently want to tear others down to make myself look better. I'm going to inherently look at the weaknesses of my brother and sister instead of celebrating what Jesus is doing in their life. But to outdo one another in honor is a win for us all. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate what Christ is doing in each other and to point to Jesus in each other's life. And that takes a great deal of patience, which is why I think he encourages us with promises of the gospel next. He says, verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. These commandments seem like they're just about our relationship with God, but in context, it's not just about that. It's about how we relate to one another. And again, Paul's telling us we should have a great deal of patience with one another. In other words, these promises remind us that we don't give up on our brothers and sisters in Christ. That to have an affection for them is that we are patient, that we're constant in prayer, that we are setting an example for one another of what it looks like to go through this life with hope in the promises of the gospel. And that can stir up a genuine love in a community. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, well, I'm new to Kings. Like, I don't know a lot of people here yet. Uh, so I don't really have a heart for people yet. Or, or maybe you're saying, I've been here for a while and that's why I don't have a heart for people here. <laughs> I don't know what spectrum you're on there. Either way, let me just encourage you with, with what verse 12 says. Rejoice in hope, be patient, triple, should be constant in prayer. If you're having a hard time, having a heartfelt affection for your, your brother and sister in Christ, I'd encourage you to pray. The first step is to pray. Pray that the Lord would put them on your heart because it's really hard to hate someone when you pray for them. And I think the Lord will answer that prayer. If you have a hard time feeling like you have a heartfelt affection, this affection, this feeling of, of brotherly love for your brothers and sisters in Christ here, then serve together. Because when you serve together, there's the togetherness that comes about from that, a genuineness that we're all in this together. Next, he says that real love is generous as well. That there's a generosity in the way in which we love one another. Paul is now kind of moving from spiritual recognition to now kind of this practical provision. Basically, he's saying, hey, love in action. Put your money where your mouth is, Paul says, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So what is Paul assuming here? Paul is assuming that in the life of a church, there are going to be needs. And Paul's also assuming that in the life of the church, there will be the means to meet those needs. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. In other words, we have to know each other well enough in the church to actually know what the needs are. We have to be known and willing to listen to one another to know what the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ are. So we have to hear, we have to listen, we have to be known to pick up the needs, and we also have to be open to the reality that we have needs. And we have to be known well enough to expose ourselves to one another, to give people the opportunity to support and encourage us in our need. So Paul's saying, 
In Acts chapter four, we see the early church doing this well. I'm just gonna read a few verses from Acts chapter four. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace came upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. You see this beautiful description of, of a generous church who was, who was showing genuine love to one another, meeting each, each other's needs. But notice right in the middle of that what Paul says, or excuse me, what, what Luke writes. He says, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and there was great grace upon them all. What makes a community generous is the reality that Jesus is alive. The reality of the resurrection was fueling their generosity. And why is that important? Because it shows us and reminds us that Jesus is more real than our stuff is. That is the life of a Christian who believes that because of the resurrection, Jesus is more real to us than the things that we have. And that helps us be generous with others. But notice in Romans 12 again, he's not just talking about being generous with our practical needs. In the very same verse, he also says we should seek to show hospitality. In other words, being generous doesn't just mean that we we're generous with our resources and our means, but we're also generous with our lives. We're generous with our homes. We're generous with our hearts. Hospitality is, is more than just inviting people into your home, although that is part of it. Hospitality is not just entertaining, right? I'm from the South, okay? We live for this. It's like we think hospitality is just entertaining. And, and you know, if you, if you feel like you've kind of, flown, uh, kind of floated into that world of hospitality is entertaining, a good, a good kind of litmus test is that you're actually doing it less often and you're doing it more lavishly. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to essentially say, like, look at me. Like, like look, what I, look what I have accomplished here. But hospitality is not about entertaining. Hospitality is about showing our real life to others, letting people into our real life. It's not just allowing people to visit the life of our, uh, part of our lives that we want to put out on social media. It's allowing people to come into our lives. It's letting people in. So it doesn't matter what kind of home you have. And Lord knows we don't have a lot of space here in D.C. in most of our apartments slash closets slash whatever you live in. Okay? It doesn't matter the size of your home. Hospitality, the key to hospitality is the size of your heart. Are you willing to invite people into your life? Are you willing to share your life with others? That's what hospitality is. It's being generous with the life that God has given us. And notice what he says here. He says that not that we should do hospitality. He says that we should seek to show hospitality. In other words, when genuine love comes alive in a community, it is on our radar to be hospitable. When genuine love comes alive in a community, we desire hospitality. We are looking, we're actively seeking ways to be hospitable to one another. Now, some of us, it might sound attractive, and some of us, that might just be fearful. Because we're thinking, okay, I'm, I'm too busy. Like, to, to add more to my plate, to invite people in my lives, that's, that, sounds, uh, that sounds daunting. Well, let me just encourage you with something. Paul's not telling us, hey, go add five more nights to your, your week of, of having people over to your house. Right? Maybe that's part of it. But I think what hospitality means is that we just invite people into the life that we are or living. It, it's essentially a way to say that here are the things that we're doing, and hospitality means that we're going to fold other people into our lives already. That we're going to fold people into the rhythms that we have in our life, which means that hospitality can happen and often does happen best in the mundane, the silly examples of life. Going on a walk together. Going to the grocery store together. Eating a meal together. Working out together. The, the simple things of life are ways in which we can have this genuine love and affection for one another through our generosity with our lives. And so he says we should seek hospitality. 
Now, the next few verses, the, the, uh, the emphasis begins to, t- to turn a little bit. Uh, Paul goes from just thinking about, okay, what does genuine love look like in the community to now what does genuine love look like outside the community? And specifically, what does genuine love look like towards our enemies? What does it look like to those who persecute us? And this is so important, and, and we could spend an entire uh, sermon on these, these passages, uh, so I'm going to be pretty brief here. Uh, but here's the reality, guys. The, the Christian church is unique in the way in which we love one another, but there's a lot of communities that would say, I have brotherly and sisterly love for those in the community. But what makes Christianity unique is how we relate to those outside of our community. How we love our enemies and how we bless those who persecute us. Look what the text says, verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. So we see a little bit of interchanging. Maybe he's talking to the community still here. He's talking to those outside the community. I think it's appropriate to see that these are intertwined. Right? We can't have genuine love in the community if we don't have it outside the community. We can't have genuine love just outside the community and not in the community, okay? These things go together. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, with all these exhortations, I think the principle that Paul's trying to get at are really summarized in two verses, verse 17 and verse 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. In verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the word overcome that he ends with in verse 21 is a military term. It's a term that means overpower. It means conquer. In other words, what he's saying here is, is that the, the way to defeat evil, the way to overcome evil, the way to, to have victory over evil is by doing good to the one who harms. Now, that is very hard to do. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that if we hate the person who wrongs us, if we hate our enemies, that person has already won that the only way to actually defeat evil is to live a life in front of our enemies of one of forgiveness and love towards that person. Now, I, I think we have to be careful here because one thing we, that, that is hard about this passage is oftentimes we want to identify evil so closely with the evildoer. And in doing so, we always feel like we have to destroy the evildoer in order to destroy evil. And there's a great illustration of this in, in Lord of the Rings. It's been a month, guys, okay, since I've last said Lord of the Rings up here. It's been a month, all right, give me a break. In Lord of the Rings, there, there's the Ring of Power, and that's Sauron creates. And that ring is oftentimes trying to, is, is used by good people to try to destroy evil. But what happens? When they try to use evil, that ring's evil. When they try to use evil to destroy evil, what ends up happening? They become evil. I, in other words, if we try to seek victory through the wrong means, we actually become like the evil we're trying to destroy. That's what Paul's saying here. That as a Christian, the secret for the Christian and how we relate to our enemies is to see that evil is distinct from the evildoer. And so we have this discerning love that calls out evil, but the text also reminds us that we are to show forgiveness, love, and kindness to our enemies at the very same time. Now, let's give some caveats here, because I don't think Paul is saying that we should never regulate our relationships. 
There are times where there are relationships with people that are like water and oil. They don't go together. And Paul's not saying you should go to those people and try to be BFFs with them. His point here is that we should not intentionally try to avoid relationships with difficult people and therefore not try to pursue peace with them. And Paul's also not saying that what this means, this kind of lifestyle of forgiveness and love towards our enemies, he's not saying that we should stay in an abusive relationship or relationship where you're criminally taken advantage of. He's not saying that. Again, going back to the beginning of this passage, a, a genuine love is one that can discern what is good and what is evil, and hates that which is evil. And Paul's going to go further in this idea uh, in, in Romans 13, we'll see next, when he's going to talk about how the role of civil government plays in keeping justice and protecting the innocent. Now, look, the, the point here is this, that verse 18, he gives this clause. He says, if possible. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, what Paul's implying there is there may be situations where it's not possible. And so again, I should say this clearly. God's intention for us to love our enemies, to bless those who persecute us, to, to offer forgiveness, to not take vengeance, God's purpose and intention that is not to say remain in an unsafe situation. His intention is not to say remain in an unsafe situation or, or to be in a situation where you're being exploited. That's not what he's saying. The point is, though, as a Christian, our heart should be to not avoid hostile people, to not avoid our enemies, but should be quick to forgive to not seek vengeance, but to trust in God's justice. And to do so, we demonstrate in love like Christ loved us. Now, the reason that is so important for the Christian is because in doing so, it keeps evil from gaining ground on us. Because if, if we allow hatred and pride to enter our hearts towards our enemies, it will infect us. It will get to us. But it also means that this also helps stop the spread of the evildoer itself. Paul's talking about here, he's saying our actions and our love can actually, and even our opposition to the evil, can actually help the evildoer be softened. And so repent. Look at verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Like, what a sweet little image Paul is leaving us with, right? <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean, Paul? Um, now, there's, there's some debate on what this, this, um, this metaphor of, of heaping burning coals on his head, but I think, I think maybe what this can help us understand is, is how we should rightly approach our enemies. Um, it, it comes from kind of an idea that if a city is, is being uh, overtaken by an enemy and the army is coming in the city, there's a few ways that the citizens of that city can help protect the city, right? One of the ways they can do that is they can go to the top of the city wall and they can pour some kind of hot liquid or fire on the enemy, okay? Because guess what that does? It stops the attack. Because it's kind of hard to wield a sword when your hair's on fire, right? It's kind of hard to aim well when you're burning. Now, what's Paul trying to get at here? It's really a paradox here. Uh, that when we're under attack by an enemy, if a person attacks us, if a person wrongs us, we should stop them. We should oppose them. We should stop the attack. And sometimes that means that it may be even by painful means. But, look what he says here. Our opposition should always be for their good. That's what Paul's getting at here. Our opposition should always be for their good. 
If someone has wronged you, we oppose them for their good. Why? So that maybe they will be persuaded. So that maybe they will actually change. See, if a person is sinning against you, the most unloving thing you can do is leave them in their sin and not oppose them. That is the most unloving thing possible, is to let them keep going on sinning. But in our opposition, what Paul is saying here, he's saying in our opposition, we should do it softly, we should do it graciously, and we should do it humbly. We should do it in a way that is showing them that we're actually trying to feed them and give them drink. That's what he's saying. And even if they were to look at us and they were to say, I don't like what you're saying to me right now, I don't even agree with what you're saying, but one thing is clear, you care for me. That's the heart of a Christian. To be able to speak truth, to be able to hold our ground, but to do it in such a way that the enemy actually knows that we care for them, that what we're extending to them is food when they're hungry and drink when they're thirsty. Because when you do that, you are giving someone a chance to repent. You're giving them a chance to feel the shame of what they've done. And by your gracious life, you can overcome evil with good. Now, as we come to the Lord's Supper, I just want to conclude with our last point here. What is the real power to love? This is hard. It's hard to have genuine love for one another in the community, and it's really hard to display love and forgiveness to those who are hostile to us. What is the real power to love? Well, as I said at the beginning, it's the power that comes from outside of ourselves, that love can only be genuine when the genuine love of Jesus has been poured in us. Because everything we talked about today is what Jesus has done for us. That's the reminder we need. How do we have brotherly affection? It's to look to Jesus, the one who loves us, and he doesn't just say, I just love you enough. I I just love you because I'm contractually obligated to love you. No, he loves us with his heart. He treats us like his family. Jesus is the one who has shown us honor, so much honor that he says that his children, us, we have standing in heaven. And Jesus has been so generous towards us so generous with his life that he went to the cross. And in doing so, he was hospitable. Jesus is so hospitable to you right now. He has opened up his heart, his life, and even just a moment, he invites us to a table to experience his goodness. Jesus has done all these things while we opposed him. He has blessed us even while we were hostile to him. So Paul says, look, the, the key to letting love be genuine And if you feel like I don't have that genuine love right now, the key to that is to look to Christ this morning. To behold the beauty of his love. Because what we worship, when we behold something that has beauty in his love, what we worship, we become like. What we revere, we begin to resemble. And so if we want to have genuine love in our community this morning, then we need to look and gaze upon the genuine love of Christ. Because as we do that, inevitably, what that will do is it will pour that heart, that that love into our hearts. And that love will rise up in our hearts for one another and for those outside these walls. And that is how the world will know that we're his disciples. That is how the watching world will look and say there's something different about King's Church. They live with a conviction of truth and goodness. They have an affection for one another that is otherworldly. They honor one another and build each other up and they're generous with what they have and they bless those who persecute them and they forgive their enemies. And the only explanation for that type of love is that there is some gravitational pull of something greater that is affecting them. 
There's something outside of themselves, an unseen presence that has made its mark on this community, and that is Jesus. He has come and made his presence real among us. So let it affect us today. Let us be a community that the world can look at us and say, these people are following the real Jesus because of their love. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.